Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Tom, I, it's on my screen what you're going to say and I've never heard this one before now, but fire away. Now what I'm going to say to you first of all I want to correct you I don't believe that this person is now living Oh no, okay, alright, okay because he'd be uh, very old. Long yeah. before conspiracy theories were a fact of life um, as a young boy school boy back in the 1960s I was privileged to a conversation that was going on between a group of men about the Second World War. Right. And um, it was stated in that conversation, which, by the way, I did bring up with my father on a number of occasions uh, before, even, even before his death, that uh, Adolf Hitler actually lived and survived the Second World War, where he was smuggled out of Germany and he was brought here to Ireland. Uh, <laughs> to Wicklow. To Wicklow. He lived in Wicklow. That would explain a, period, a lot, in fairness. <laughs> yeah, for a period of time. Um, and he, he came here with a, seri- and, and, uh, with a number of high-profile Nazis who settled in Dublin 4 and who went on to establish... And who, uh, who, were, the, who were the high-profile what? Adolf Ekman and Joseph Mengele no, and a few no, others? But, no, but, but, but it, is a, it is a historical fact that some very... Se- Actually, the late Cochalo Shannon brought that up in a, a documentary about the senior Nazis that lived in Dublin 4. But did they not identify him by dental records some time yeah. ago, when, when it was released, when his body was released from Russia? Because did they not say that after the Allied forces, of course, took over the capital of Nazi Germany, that he killed himself in the Fuhrer bunker, well, there is and then was captured, and his body was taken by the Red Army? Yeah, well, there is all of that. No, the Red Army stated they had they never received his body. Well, they, now, they allegedly kept oh, it behind yeah. the Iron Curtain for many decades. Well, well I'm just telling you now. But yeah. anyhow, going back to the story... That, uh, that Hitler was actually smuggled out, brought to Ireland, and the people who were responsible for looking after him were very senior members of the fascist movement of Fine Gael. Um, in 2011, December, I happened to be in Costa Rica, which is Central America, mm-hmm. and um, it's, you know, it's just above Panama, below Nicaragua, small little strip. Um, and in another part of the world was your ex and your son, who is now 15 years of age. Yes, she, we'd been apart, and she'd moved mm. on, and now had a family, and was married, and had mm. other children, and all this kind of things. Mm. And I'd spent time uh, coming back to Ireland to try and time holidays, and come back to be with Dara, and uh, different, mm. you know, different family things, or summer holidays. And but your ex, your ex got up that morning, and she was having a shower. Yeah, well, she um, has, has related to me uh, more than mm. once that... It was Monday morning, calling Dara for school. Um, first call, okay, he didn't get up about 7 a.m. approx. And um, mm. second call, she thought, very strange, he's usually up and into the shower. She said, that's it. Third call, up and into his room and said, collapsed in a heap on the floor because he was turning purple. He was laying dead in his bed. And he had just been um, 15 for, he turned 15 three weeks prior. So, 14 in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and um, to do with autopsies and the situation nothing registered to show any cause of death no explanation no toxicology reports or organ problems or not even a tight muscle they said if he had a stroke maybe a, some muscle somewhere should be tightened mm. and it then is penned down as a sudden arrhythmia death syndrome or sudden which can happen syndrome. to anybody anybody your heart I guess the electronics of the heart, it goes tick-tock, 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 tick. And it just doesn't talk back. So it just stops. And um, Your life ended that day. 
I get a very long distance phone call to me from a brother out in, I was in Costa Rica. My brother phoned me. Um, I asked him to tell me. He couldn't tell me, pleaded with me to call home and speak to my mother. And I was like, just tell me, man. I thought my mother was taking care of my grandmother. I thought my grandmother has died. And, um, you know, I said, I'm in a third world country. I'm on an internet phone, man. Just tell me what's the problem. And he said, I can't. Please call ma'am. And I said, look, pull yourself together. And he said, it's your son. It's Dara. He's dead. And um, that was the moment that... You can, re- you can remember that phone call like it was yesterday. Oh, I feel it right now. Yeah, yeah that that um, that was the day that changed my life. Mm. Um, and so, so I travelled back. I mean, that panic. journey but from Costa Rica back... To, uh, your ex-partner was in Limerick. So, you know, going from there to Dublin Airport, well, getting did, from Dublin I, Airport to yeah, Limerick. I had to source a plane out there first. I found out in the morning. You have to run around and find an airline, find a plane. How are you going to, they wanted to, American Airlines said, you know, we can fly it to New York, we can, which will then get you to Paris, which will then get you to Dublin, and it takes 40 hours. I said, man, I have a funeral to get to. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to try and swim. I, yeah. I got to get there. And so I got Iberia Airlines, the Spanish one, which was direct Costa Rica to Madrid, connecting Madrid to Dublin, walk out to my brother in the car in Dublin, and then drive to Limerick. So we're looking at 14 hours in the air and mm. four hours in the car and all the time the wave of emotion is um, tears. Oh, that, that journey, you must have just wanted to explode. It was a very difficult journey. But that morning, yeah, she said, I'll try and wait. I said, I'm coming. I'm sorry. And she's like, well, I'm here shopping for coffins. And I thought, yeah. what a mess. Yeah. You know. Um, and again, I didn't know what to think mm. because the emotion, the shock, the feelings... And just to mention, of course, you know, we're men and our feelings and our falling down crying doesn't happen in our society, as we know it, the stigma yeah. is there. And I had to brave face my way onto a plane through mm. the security line and in with all the crowd and sit. And it was it was difficult. It was a very difficult journey, yeah. And no mother or father expects to lose a son. It's, um, <clears throat> it's the weird cycle in life. Obviously, the, the cliche would be, we expect to bury our parents. We don't expect to bury our children before mm. ourselves. But um, the day of putting Dara into the grave um, was a very difficult day. So everything from that moment forward, there's a lot of difficult times. Mm. The journey home, burying him, lowering a coffin, putting the lid on a coffin, never to see him again. And I actually experienced what I believe is called a panic attack after that, a year maybe. Mm. Where I was in a place, I wanted to come home I was back out in Costa Rica. I wanted to come home and put flowers on his grave for his birthday. Mm. And I just had to do it. Mm. And it was like, book the plane, whatever costs, I don't care. And I came to Ireland for five days. Flew into Dublin, car down to Limerick, flowers on his grave, flew back out to my life in Costa Rica. And then I said, what did I do that for? What was wrong with me? Hi, Niall, how are you? I had a baby myself in 1983. I gave him up for adoption. But thankfully, things were starting to change then. Um, I actually got to meet his adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a consolation for me to know who was actually going to be looking after my baby. And what, what was, can I ask you, if, and if I ask you a personal question now that you don't want to answer, please just yeah. don't answer it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, what was the reason that you wanted to put your child up for adoption? Did you just well, feel you couldn't cope? Um, my mother gave me a choice, either go into a mother and baby home and have him, or, sorry... <laughs> Come up for adoption. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset you, and I really don't want to upset yeah, it's, you. It's okay. It's all good. It's all good. Um, 
So I gave up my job when I was six months pregnant. I went to live with a family in Dunshockland who looked after me. They gave me bed and board and I did some babysitting and lighthouse duties. And then I went back home after my baby was born. Do you know what shocks me more about the story so far? This is not 1953. This is 1983. Yeah. It's only a it's short while ago. ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, everybody knew I'd had a baby and given him away. Um, then I was watching a program one night on the television on adoption stories and I thought, I have to find my son I need in my life. And I made contact with the adoption agency in Dublin and the first thing that he said to me on the phone was, um, you are aware he might want to have anything to do with you. And I thought, oh my God, I'm ringing here with happiness in my heart and that's the first thing he says to me on the phone. I know he was only doing his job or whatever. You felt it was quite negative. Yeah. Yeah, it just knocked me for six. And... Then he said, we have to wait until your files match up and whatever. So they have to wait. So they basically put down on their file that you have an interest. And then they have to wait till he contacts and says that he has an interest. Yeah. And he was was 23 at the time. So he was an adult, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's over 18. Um, And did did they not say that they would contact him? No. No, they said they would have to wait until so he contacts them. Came in. Yeah, until and see this. This is where the problem is, and people yeah. could be waiting years. It may not come into his head. People move on with their lives, and it exactly. may not just be in his head. But as soon as maybe he thinks about it a bit more, maybe it would, and he'd contact them. But you, you kind of sometimes need to be a little bit of a push, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But thankfully, you know, he started searching this very same time as myself. Oh, that's he, brilliant. He just kept hitting a brick wall. That was in 2011 so, that this would have been, yeah. Yeah, so then he went to um, a tracing agency and they actually found me. Okay, was that a private agency, was it? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so, um, cause and that what, was that, what was that day like when they contacted you? Oh my God, I just... It must have been I a wonderful day. Yeah, I just could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. Because um, had you get, when you contacted them originally in 2011, uh, the Adoption Society or the Adoption Agency, we, that you said that knocked you for six, obviously, because it was so negative. Yeah. Uh, had you kind of given up hope then? Um, I'd say a year had gone by, and I thought, this is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, there was personal tragedy in my own life, and that kind of took... Sidetracked, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, and then I kind of got back on track again, and I thought, oh, this is never going to happen. And then eventually I got the phone call um, in the middle of February, and we met then on the 1st of March. What was it like seeing your little boy after oh 20, my God. 25 years? It was just unbelievable. Good afternoon, Niall. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Mom always talked about you. Uh, she, she she took me everywhere with her, <laughs> I believe, yes. we. She's, she's, she always said if he was the one that had the bravery and the courage to speak out where nobody else did. Oh, you tell her I really appreciate her compliments and I'll, I'll take that on board. But yes. sadly, she got a bit of bad news. She did. Um, I live in the UK. My brother lives here in Dublin and my sister lives in the Netherlands. My mom was taken into hospital on the 15th of February at 2am in the morning. She had a seizure in bed. Okay. My brother was upstairs. He came down and it was a terrifying experience for mom. Um, she was taken away and my brother unfortunately couldn't go with her because of the COVID restrictions. So mom was terrified this had come on her. And not only that, she had to leave her son out on the road. Okay. So she was taken into the Masha Hospital on Monday the 15th of February. 
Um, we called her in the evening time very distressed, saying that she was lying on a bench and she didn't know what was happening to her. She was frightened and she was cold. So we ran through to the staffing unit to see if we put a blanket on mom. Mm-hmm. Um, mom was sadly diagnosed with a mass on her brain on Wednesday, the 17th of February. Oh, I'm so sorry. Own. I'm so sorry to hear that. On her own. I know, and and you know, this is very distressing to hear this, that elderly people, or anybody indeed for that matter, you know, is in hospital on their own, and it's a time when you want to hold somebody's hand. Absolutely, for a fit and independent woman who went against all the odds at Christmas when they said, don't go to the UK, we're going to close all the airports. My mum got on a flight on the 22nd of December. She got on a flight from Dublin to London Heathrow and came down to me in Poole and Dorset in a taxi. She stayed with me for two weeks. Mm-hmm. She went back on a patriation flight from Stansted. She said it was absolutely packed. There was no space in between each other. She's 76 years of age. She got off that flight and she came home and she quarantined in Fairview for two weeks. She didn't contact contact uh, contract uh, COVID or anything like that. She was left in the Matter Hospital to be told that she had, and not only that, she witnessed a poor man. The plug was unplugged. No family was with him in a cubicle and they put a blanket over him, right? Mm. The trauma just continued. Do you know what, Evelyn, it's just coming back to me. I remember talking to your mum before Christmas. absolutely. And she was so undecided about what to do and she really wanted to get to see you. I remember talking to her and and I think I encouraged her probably just to go. she did, (laughs) She rang me at 4.20 in the morning. That's right, she told me that. Sonia, will you ring me? I'm not going to Dublin. I'm not going to London today. And I said, OK, Mum, have a few hours sleep. I went online and I booked her a ticket for 6 o'clock that evening. She rang me back at 10 and said, I'm raging, I didn't go. I said, Mum, you're booked on the 6 o'clock. And we had a wonderful time together. I do remember the conversation with her. It was a wonderful time together. And on the 17th, when Mum was diagnosed on her own, she rang us up on the Thursday and we were trying to get over. We got in, myself and my sister, because the embassy don't allow you in unless it's crucial. And we were devastated. We had to do a PCR test. I travelled up to London. I came across. We were supposed to quarantine. There was no bloody way. I wanted to see my mum. And we weren't allowed to see her. We went down to the hospital. She checked, discharged herself on the Friday night. And, and all she wanted to do was see you. She just wanted somebody to, to hold her hand and somebody um, to make her feel a bit better. Absolutely. And my brother went down at 8 o'clock on Friday night and carried my mum into his van and took her home here with us. Oh. And the woman I saw was a very different woman to what I had seen when she left me on the 7th of January. She was a broken woman, distraught, absolutely post-traumatic stress. And you know what, I, and I've spoken to her a couple of times, and I remember talking to her just before Christmas when she went over to see you, mm-hmm. and she was such a positive woman. She's a, she's a wonderful, not only is she a positive woman, she's a wonderful mother yeah. and a friend. And, and you know, my heart goes out. I mean, I I always say that I count my lucky stars that my parents are dead. And I know that sounds a horrible thing yes, to say. No, uh, but 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 if my mum and dad had been in the situation that your mum is in now, where she's very unwell, I would hate to think... What, I've said it before on the show, and I and by the way, I have an obligation to tell people to follow the guidelines, etc., etc. But wild horses wouldn't stop me from seeing my mother. Oh, absolutely. And, and I know how people feel about that. Oh, it, it was just heartbreaking for my brother the trauma of seeing that he couldn't go with her mm-hmm. and that we had come over distressed from another country and we couldn't we couldn't even have a quick COVID test I'd have paid anything to see my mother's face when she got that diagnosis absolutely anything mm-hmm. 
you know, you think about third world countries, they've got better healthcare systems here. Well, I, we I, well, look, look we've, uh, we've known for many, many years, yeah. by the way, and I heard Leo Radker this morning on radio defending our healthcare system, but mind you, and I will defend the people who work within the healthcare mm. system, the doctors and nurses, but the right. system itself, the administration of the system has been a failure for the last 30 years yeah. and, and it hasn't got any better. And look, thankfully, you know, the, the COVID-19 wasn't as bad as we initially thought it was going mm. to be back uh, last March when we were predicted, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying, which thankfully didn't happen. Because if it did, or we got anywhere close to that, the health care system would have collapsed. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do feel very sad. I feel very sad yeah. as an Irish person. And I, as I said, I love Ireland and I love the people. And I'll, do, I'll be buried here. Yeah. But I feel very sad for the Irish people that they've been so badly let down. And I want you to do something for me, Sonia. Yes. I want you to go in. I don't know. Is your, where's your, where are you now? Where's your oh, man? Oh, I can be very near to her. Do you know what I said? I want you to give her a big hug for me. Yes, I will. And do you know what I said to her now? I said, I'm not putting you beside mum because what you'll do is you'll start interfering. Yeah. Now, Niall is here beside me, mum. I want you to give her a big hug for me. Hello, Niall. Hello, Evelyn. How are you? I feel better. Okay, look. I am so sorry that you had such a bad experience and I'm so sorry that you've been diagnosed with what you've been diagnosed with and you, you know that. And you were so positive before Christmas telling us that you were going over to see your daughter, Sonia. Yeah. I remember I remember talking to you about it and you didn't know what to do. Yeah. And and look, you were right to do what you did. Absolutely, 100% right no, to do what you did. No. If I could give you a big hug now, I would. You know I would. Yeah. Okay? I know. But best wishes to all... To Paul Bowen's hospital because they, they saved my life. What's left of it? And how do you feel right now? How are you feeling? Are, they, are you okay? Are you comfortable? I, I'm very happy. Okay. And you I'm have and you have happy. your family around you? To be with my loved ones. Yeah. And that's what, what everybody needs. I, I, I would give up 10 years of my life if I had 10 years of my life. For this. Yeah. So goodbye now. Evelyn, and I, ha- I hate to hear you're unwell. Thanks, now. And I hope you're comfortable, all right? And, and give you, hug your family to death. It was worth it. Yeah. Goodbye now. I'll see you, Evelyn. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks, Niall. Sonia. Really enjoyed that. Listen, Sonia, thank you very much for getting in touch with us, all right? Yeah, and, and you look you after her, okay? I promised her. Thanks, Niall. Okay, see you, Sonia. Look goodbye, after her, okay? Yeah. Do you know what? That's one of the saddest things that I've ever heard. And she's right. Sonia is right. People all across this country have been denied access to their parents, the people they've spent all their lives with, the people who raised them, who brought them up in hospitals when they've been dying. They've been denied access to them. And I think we will look back at this with so much shame, so much shame in years to come. And I know that Evelyn broke the guidelines by going to the UK. But do I care? No, she was with her daughter. And I know her daughter would have broke the guidelines if she had to to come to see her mother in her hour of need. But do I care? No. Because that's what families are all about. That's what family is all about. I'm not encouraging people to break the guidelines, but your family are more important than any bloody guidelines. Being with the ones you love being with your elderly, the parents, the people who raised us, the people who we should respect in this country, who made this country what it is. And these are the people that made Ireland. 
And it's so difficult to listen to Evelyn. And I know she, she struggled a little bit there to talk and it was so difficult to listen to her. I want everybody to reflect on that. And I want everybody to reflect on what we're doing right now in this country. And I understand public health is important. I'm not suggesting for one minute it's not. But I've said it time and time again. We can protect the vulnerable. We can protect the people. And she rightly said, vaccinate the healthcare workers so they're not at risk in the hospitals. But we have to stop disconnecting families. We have to stop tearing people apart, particularly at funerals, be it at weddings, not so much weddings, probably certainly, but funerals or going to see our loved ones in hospital. You should never, ever be kept away from somebody in their hour of need. Never, particularly if it's your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son or daughter. Michael, you were also a soldier in Jadaville. I was indeed, and uh, one of the first soldiers to walk into Jadaville town. And can can you remember that like it was yesterday? No, oh, it, it never leaves us. We, we, it is part of us now. We, it comes in the form of PTSD. What was the first, I suppose, sign that you believed that something was going to go very wrong? Can you remember that day? Well, as I said, we, my section commander and myself walked into Jadaville Town, uh, one mile from our camp, and we sat down to have a glass of beer. And a nice black gentleman came in to speak to us and told us in no uncertain terms to leave town that we weren't required or wanted. Mm -hmm. That UN personnel were not desirable in the town. Because you were there as peacekeepers, of course, for the UN, yeah. That's right, yeah. And we were dressed in our our khaki and blue beret. Mm -hmm. And um, he, uh, he advised us at that particular time to leave town and to inform our commander to withdraw his troops before hostilities began. And on returning to our camp, we observed that the enemy troops were digging in around the camp. We were withdrawn from that camp the following morning on the understanding that uh, we were being withdrawn and not being replaced. But as, the, as history tells us, we passed a company, which was Commandant Quinlan's company, mm-hmm. Uh, travelling on the same road against us, uh, arriving into Jadaville. And uh, this is where we realised that there was a terrible misunderstanding occurring, that it, would sh- it should have been a complete withdrawal and not a rotation. And uh, we, we ended up trying to, trying to break the siege, and, uh, which resulted in, in B Company, which was my company, uh, arriving back at, at uh, Lufira Bridge. But uh, I have a poem here which reflects on the siege itself, if I may read it out yes, for go you. Ahead, go ahead, very well, you're welcome. It's titled, No White Feathers on Parade. The year was 1961, when Ireland sent away her sons to stop the genocide being done with bow and arrow, spear and gun. Quinlan led his soldiers on, and he vowed to bring them home again. So the countdown had begun, for battle neat the Congo sun. With massive odds to overcome, the siege of Jadaville had begun. The Irish soldiers dug in well, they sent a jet to give them hell. Count your rounds, you brave young men, use your bayonets when they come. Round for round, shell for shell. 3,000 men they did repel. So raise your glasses, everyone. Tell this story to your sons. Tell them of the history made. 
there was no white feathers on parade. Six days since it had begun, with water, food and bullets gone, the order came, lower your guns, lads, be proud of what you've done. But when to Ireland they returned, doors were closed and backs were turned. It's taken many years to tell of the bravery at Jadaville. So raise your glasses, everyone. Tell the story to your sons. Tell them of the history made by Quinlan and his light brigade. No white feathers on parade. I have great admiration for the men of A Company and for the men of B Company, and great admiration for the present-day soldiers who are serving under atrocious conditions. Hi, Niall. How are you? Good. Okay, do you believe that if a woman is at home, or a man is at home, the person's at home, should they do all the housework? I think it's 50-50. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't marry my husband to, you know, wipe the arse for him, so to speak. So <laughs> 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, but I, is anyone he at work? He knows I have a four-year-old. He's working, yeah, and he does work very hard. But I mean, anyone that knows me knows I have a four-year-old child. But I also have a forty-year-old child to clean up after. Oh, right, okay. So, you know, so, so you've one child. Yes. And are you working yourself? No. Okay, so you're so home. you're at home. You're a homemaker. Yes. You've one child. He's out working full time. So yes. when he comes in at night, Jim believes you should have the dinner ready for him. The dinner's ready for him. Everything's more or less ready for him. But like it's. I think he's an allergy to washing machines and dishwashers. Has he? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, even I was going out one night and I left ironing for him to do. When I came back, it was, I won't say it was folded, but it was balled into things. <laughs> so I asked him why I hadn't it done and the iron had broken. I found out to my brother the following day, he'd remo- removed the fuse from the iron, from <laughs> the plug. So I thought, fine, I won't wear it, use it for the next week. Um, he can wear crazy shirts. Came back. Yeah, exactly. He's going out the next weekend and I got out the shower, came in, he said, oh, we've ironed this. I said, sure, the iron is broken. Came back, and miraculously, the, the fuse had gone back into the iron. <laughs> Sean, you're a victim of paternity fraud. That's correct, Noel, yes. Yeah, it's going back some years ago now, but I've dealt with it and got over it eventually. So what, so what happened? You were told you were the father. That's correct, Jay. Yeah. It would have been my fifth child. Right. Um, I was married at the time. I was informed I'm pregnant, the fifth child, great. Great, great, congratulations, give each other a hug, um, this is wonderful. Eventually, I was given information that um, I should um, possibly uh, get a DNA test done on this child, that there was a possibility that it may not be mine. So, um, initially, I left it go, believing it wouldn't be the case. Yeah, of course, Um, you you, you didn't distrust her, yeah. Yeah, now, I waited till the child was born, obviously, to get a paternity test. Um, I used a DNA test through a reputable European company. right. Um, got the DNA test and and ninety nine percent not mine. Child is not yours. Did you go go straight to her and you were in a, a marriage at the time? Did you go yes, straight and say I, what, I did, what did you say to her? What I actually did, Noel, was um, I approached her, had the, a copy of the DNA test in my hands, and just called her a lawyer. And she sounds like an episode of Jeremy Kyle. To be honest, with you. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. swore black and blue that the child was mine, and I said, "Here's a test. I can get you another copy if you want this." Did now, she admit it in the end? Oh, yes, she had to admit it in the end, yes. Okay, so the test um, was right. Was t- the test it, was correct. The test was correct, but then I was in a situation where I had to decide, do I DNA test the rest of my kids? And I said, on the chance of probability, it would be a good thing to do. So I DNA tested my next two kids uh, through the same company, and they notified me that those two kids weren't mine either. Oh, my. 
So, um, and how old? How old were they at this stage? Uh, one was seven, and the other was three. So, um, what was that? That must have been horrific, John, for you. Um, it was, yeah. I don't think some people realise what I went through at that stage, but um, I dealt with it. The so now you have three children who you thought were yours, and none of which are yours. Well, no, this is where the Jerry Springer kicks in, Niall. Um, I contacted the company and asked them, is there any chance that they made a mistake? And they said, no, we are uh, 100% in actual, well, 99.9%. They allow a margin of it. They, allow, they have to legally allow a margin of error. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. but they are usually 100% correct. Yeah, yeah. so um, actually the woman on the end of the phone uh, in England uh, was almost in tears telling me that, sorry, we're not wrong. And this is the fact. So um, I dealt with it, went back to my ex-wife, confronted her with this, and she said, okay, the seven-year-old is not yours, but the other one is. And I said, well, I have a DNA test here saying that she's not mine. So when I pushed it and pushed it, she eventually agreed or um, acknowledged that she was with somebody else. Um, But in the interim, the company in England came back to me and admitted they'd made a mistake. Right. They'd used one sample twice. Right, okay. So then it ends up that out of five kids, two are not mine. I want to speak to Elaine Hughes. Elaine, good evening to you. How are you? Hi, how are you? Elaine, before we start, can I give you my condolences on the loss of your son, Darren? 17 years of age, only a very young man, his whole life ahead of him. Um, Thank you very much. What, what sort of a chap, first of all, was Darren? What sort of a, a boy was he? He was very happy. He was an absolute diamond of a lad. He really was. Back in 2012... Did you notice any changes? Did you notice anything happening? Did did he come? Had he got concerns? Did he come to you about it? No, I even up until the day that it happened, there was no indication at all. I've gone over it and over and over. Looking for the signs, looking for the clues to see was there something that I missed. The day that Darren went missing, what time was it? When was the last time you saw him? I had seen him at about two o'clock on the Wednesday. Okay. And he went out just like normal. Um, It was, my birthday was in two days. He had himself and his brothers and sister had gotten me a present for my birthday uh, right before he left. Um, I was teasing him, asking him if I could open it. And he was saying, only two more days, ma'am. You have, have to, to wait. To wait. And, <laughs> and we were laughing and joking. And he said, to, okay, I'll, I'll see you later on. I'll be home. Be home at 10. And I love you. And I said, okay, see you later. Love you. Be careful. And off you, he went. And you didn't know they were the last words, of course, that you'd speak to. At what point did you become concerned then when he didn't obviously come home? Faithfully, if he was going to be late, uh, he'd contact me. And it was about five past ten, and I rang his phone, and it was off. He always checked in. Yeah. So by half ten, I knew something was wrong. The guards came out to the house and asked for a picture, a recent picture, uh, if Darren had any identifying marks. Um, and while he was last wearing, etc., I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And they asked if they could go through his room. They said that they had spoken to one of his friends, and I didn't know at the time that they were actually looking for 
a suicide note. And why why do you think they were looking for a suicide note? What what do you think the friend had said or what had the friend indicated that maybe Darren had spoke about it? Yeah. So they went back and I was told that they'd contact me later. The type of child that he was, he he wouldn't stay out of contact, especially with me. We were so close that he just wouldn't stay out of contact with me. So we put it up on Facebook. Uh, all his friends shared it. Um, a friend of his, he remembered seeing Darren at, at this warehouse the day before. and uh, He was quite down. Mm-hmm. And he went to the warehouse. And that's when he found him. I'm so sorry to hear that, Elaine. So Darren, Darren had gone to this warehouse and, and taken his own life. Yeah. Sorry and for getting upset. No, it's okay. It's okay. And when did you hear that? When Did the friend contact you or contact the guards? Or? Um, he actually contacted um, 999. Okay. That must have been terrible he for the tried. friend to see as well. And the friend obviously had to witness that. It's something he'll never unsee, I suppose, too. I couldn't even begin to think of what he went through because mm-hmm. he tried to save Darren. He he honestly thought that he could save him and he did so much to try and we didn't know that he'd been there for nearly 24 hours already. So it seems that he had gone directly there when he left you that afternoon. Yeah, shortly thereafter. Mm. I hadn't heard anything from the guards and I rang and um, while I was on the phone I heard another guard speaking saying is that our missing person and I said is that is that my son and they found my son and she said uh, I'll ring you back in a few minutes within I'd say about 10-15 minutes uh, they were at the front door I'm sorry and I knew, and they walked in. It's a sight. And it's a sight no parent ever wants to see. Two guards at the front door. No, they walked in, and I just said to you, "Have you found him? Is he okay?" And she just said, "He's dead." Just like that, and the world as I knew it ended. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.